Okay, so uh, turn this off and get this and get settled in. Okay, so Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 4. This is today's passage. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, um, so we already talked about uh, two weeks ago. If you were here, that's great. If you were not here, you missed some really important things about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's, a, it's a unique book. So the uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to redefine a couple of things here. So first off is makarios. It's the word blessed. Um, it's not happiness. Happiness is, is dependent on random chance. Remember the word hap is at the beginning of happiness. And it, like happenstance, things happen. Um, and so it carries this idea of, of an accident that makes you happy. Like you accidentally receive something or just... Um, it, it has to do with external circumstances. Makarios does not. Makarios, um, blessed in this sense, is something that you carry with you. It's deep inside of you, which you cannot lose. Um, it's not something you receive later out, uh, upon death or anything like that. This is something that you learn and that you carry with you and that changes how you look at situations around you. It's, it's, a, it's a joy that is rooted deep inside through your experience combined with your understanding combined with sort of your, your sort of outlook on the world and God. Um, and so that's this word, Makarios. Now, um, so let's look at the idea of the word um, mourn. So blessed are those who mourn. So the word mourn is this word pentheo. Everyone say pentheo. Very good. Uh, it means, it's, it's basically the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. Um, so there's this, um, version of, I know we have lots of different versions of scripture today. Basically, they're all different. Um, they're all translations from ancient texts, um, and there's variances throughout these, these ancient texts, slight ones. And then there's, there's different ways to use these ancient Greek words. And so some scholars sit down and they, they translate sort of different ancient Greek words different ways. Um, and that's how we end up with, like, you know, the NIV, NIRV, uh, the KJV, the NKJV, the... ESV, the whatever, the New Living Translation, and they're all just different attempts to capture the meaning of this ancient, ancient text. Now, um, there's a really ancient version of the Old Testament um, scriptures. It's called the Septuagint. Um, perhaps you know what this is, perhaps you don't. For those of you who don't, the Septuagint is the first century, actually a little pre-first century, translation of the ancient Hebrew scriptures into Greek. So the language that the ancient Israelites spoke is, is a dead language. Nobody really necessarily, they didn't really speak Hebrew. It was something that sort of probably predated Hebrew. Um, and in the first century, someone took all these ancient scriptures and had them translated into a Greek Bible, the first century. And this is what, what the first century Jews would be reading because um, they spoke Greek um, as well as probably Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, and so they call this book the Septuagint. And this book is really important because we can look through it and we can see how the first century Jews interpreted the words of the Old Testament. And so you could probably, if you read this, get a better understanding of how they view the word. So in the Septuagint, what we like to do is we like to take this word like mourn, like pentheo, and not only look at how it was used in Greek, but also look at how it was used in the Septuagint in the ancient scriptures. Um, and so if you run a search um, of the ancient Hebrew scriptures of the word pentheo, you're going to find different usages of it, and when you read these ancient usages of it, you get a better understanding of the weight of the word, because oftentimes we read, blessed are those who mourn, and that can mean any level of mourning. It can mean a broken leg, or it can mean um, a life-altering illness, okay? So, 
Uh, if you go to Genesis 37, 34 in the Septuagint, you read this. Jacob tore his clothes. He put on black clothes. And then he sobbed, come say, over his son for many days. So Jacob, uh, in this story, um, has been told that his son has just died. And the word that is used to describe his mourning is this word, pentheo. So that gives us some context of the weight of this ancient word. So we have here in Matthew 5, 4, um, it's describing those who mourn as if they are mourning for the loss of a loved one. So what we have here is Jesus teaching his disciples, blessed are those who mourn as though they have lost it's, it's an intensely heavy word. And then he answers it, for they shall be comforted. Now, um, so also if you weren't here two weeks ago, then, then you missed my summary of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not one sermon that was preached one time by Jesus. It is the, the sort of summary of all of the teachings of Christ that Matthew collected over three years of following Jesus. And so from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, it is the summary. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It is the summary of all of Christ's teachings in two chapters. Incredibly important to study and understand and learn. Um, and so that's Matthew um, 5 through 7. So the, in this summary, there, it's broken into different little pieces, and what we're in right now is called the Beatitudes. And so the Beatitudes, when you read them, you're sort of going to read all of the Beatitudes sort of the same way. Um, so what was true for the first beatitude is also true for the second beatitude. Namely, there is this question. So the first beatitude looked like this. Blessed are, the, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of course, the word poor um, is a word that means absolutely destitute. And what we find when we're looking at this passage is there's this question of why. What do the poor, those who have nothing, what do they know that the rest of us cannot know? And this is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Basically, um, they understand that everything, every day, every, every meal, every article of clothing, um, every day that you wake up alive again is a gift. They understand something that we don't understand because we are um, sort of blinded by the illusion that we are providing for ourselves and keeping ourselves alive, that the whole thing could collapse at any moment. And only those that are destitute feel accurately about life. And so everything is received as a gift. Another day... Here, life is a gift, and so that's how they receive it, and so that's how sort of we understand this. So the question to understand the Beatitudes that you need to ask is, um, why are they blessed? What do they know that I don't know? Because I am not destitute and poor. And what about those who are mourning? I have never, I mean, I haven't lost someone that's really, really close to me. Other people have. What do they know now about life that I do not know? What? can I learn from them? How can I become their student and sit at their feet and let them teach me about what they have learned about life? Some of you are close to this kind of stuff and some of you are not, you have no idea. Um, the only real loss that I've suffered in my life is, is uh, my senior year of college when my cousin, um, who had been married about eight months, died in a car accident. Um, and she, it was just this heavy, weighty, terrible thing in our family and I watched her husband sort of um, at one point stand up out of a wheelchair because he was in the car with her too and he's just destroyed and he and he and he like leans on the casket and he starts yelling at God and he says God you did a bad thing taking my wife from me and he just starts yelling at things it was just the most 
heart-wrenching thing I've, I've been a part of. And it was my cousin. It, it wasn't even like a direct, close family member. I hadn't talked to, to her in a couple of years. Um, and so there are things that some people know that the rest of us don't know. Um, and about two years ago, I did this series on suffering. It was like a three-week series on suffering. I believe it was from the book of First Peter. Um, and I made an observation that I have noticed. I've, I've been a pastor for about 10 uh, July, I think, is my 10th year. Um, and then uh, I, I've, I've done probably over 100 and 130 or 140 weddings, and, and there's things that I noticed going to these gatherings of, of families here to celebrate, like the union of two people and the coming together of two families. Um, and the thing that I've noticed about weddings is that there's two kinds of weddings. There is, there is that, that one kind of wedding where it's, it's, it's far more typical, where the family is fighting. Sometimes there's a bridezilla. Other times there's a groomzilla, believe it or not. Those actually exist. Um, and, uh, and everyone is stressing over this day because they have such high expectations of it that it has to work out perfectly. Everything has to be perfect. And, and then on top of that, all of your family is coming. And how hard is that? Like there's these things from your childhood that you're carrying that someone said one time when you were nine, and I, you can't let go of that. Like that's cannot believe. They, they were seven, but you were nine and you just held on to it. Um, and so we're all carrying this baggage, and so there's bickering, and there's this underlining sort of tone of like, yeah, typical of you, and just, and this is how it is, and you're just, um, is it crazy Uncle Rudy is coming, he's going to get drunk, and it's not going to go well, and, and you're all trying to figure out, you know, how to just keep this together, and, and everyone smile, and like, hey, there you are, and just smile and get through this wedding. So that's one kind of wedding, that's the typical wedding. And then there's this other kind of wedding where there's a seat that is, has been marked off and will not be sat in because it represents someone in the family who died, who was supposed to be there and not there. And you hear the bride saying, this is so beautiful, they would have loved this. Um, you hear the mother talking about um, this, this is a great honor. And, and there's this obvious weight of the ceremony, that something is missing, that someone is missing, and in, in the back of your mind, even in the birth of this new thing, there is the mourning of this loss of this old thing that no one ever planned on, that this person was supposed to be here, and they're not. And so what you actually find at these weddings is that there's not sadness, there's not arguing, there's this understanding of life, there's this understanding of like, well, gift here we are and there's this thought for um the family that is that is like you know there'll be more weddings and i hope there's no more empty seats and and every time we come together maybe if it's a big family maybe every time we come together every few years there'll be one less of us and so you kind of wake up at some point when you lose someone close to you that when you mourn like this you start to wake up to the like wow life is a gift and life is short there's things that those who have suffered know that actually improve their life that make their life more meaningful, more abundant, um, more beautiful. Um, there's, this, um, there's this ancient sort of Arab proverb that talks about the desert and how deserts are made. Do you know how deserts are made? Um, deserts are made when, when it's sunshine all the time, all the time. Um, we love the sunshine. We love Florida. We love, we lo- it doesn't have rain in a while. Everyone's like, yeah, until fires start. 
Um, but when there's no sunshine, what happens is things stop growing. When it's all sunshine all the time, when there's no rain, when there's no storms, uh, things stop growing. Fruit doesn't grow and drop and feed people. Um, rivers dry up. Um, all sunshine. The, pro- the Arab proverb goes, all sunshine makes a desert. And so there was this way. It was something that they would say when things would get difficult, when things would get hard. They would say, but you know what? It's okay because you can't have sunshine all the time because if you do, you'll never grow. There's no, there's no growth in that. There's no goodness in that. There's no nurturance in that. There's nothing good that ends up coming of that. Um, we talked about, uh, I think it was like about six months ago, um, uh, the idea of, of Rembrandt and his painting. Hard to see, but, but he did that on purpose, I think. Um, and so Rembrandt paintings, um, I, it's a beautiful picture. It's a reminder of this, the idea that like when, when the painting is incredibly dark and then there's one sort of source of light in the picture, it makes that one source of light, whatever the subject of that light is, even, even an old man sitting at a table, it makes it beautiful. And it's actually the presence of the darkness that makes the light more beautiful. Um, and... And this is an imp- a really important thing for Christians to understand. We oftentimes buy into this idea of what's called, in our country, it's, it's, how, it's why our country was founded, the pursuit of happiness, right? It's what we're chasing. We want happiness, happiness, happiness. But the early disciples understood that this is not at all um, how things should work. This is not how we grow. This is not healthy. All happiness, all sunshine, all the time. And what you find is these apostles, after spending time with Jesus, who paints to them, uh, who, who, who paints them this, this picture of, of meaningful life and how life should be lived, it is, it is not meant to be pursuing happiness all the time. And so the apostles of Christ, the disciples of Christ, instead of pursuing happiness, they set out and pursued uh, shalom, peace, reconciliation. Um, they sought love. They sought those who would never find peace, and they went out and looked for them. And then these same apostles, after experiencing great suffering and pain, would write these letters, and they would say things like this in James 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work. So you can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You want to lack nothing? It's not going to come by being in sunshine all the time. You want to learn patience? You want to be completed? Do you, do you want to find completeness in your life? You will not find completeness avoiding difficult things and avoiding pain. Um, you will not find completeness, completeness moving through life pretending like there is no suffering, pretending like there is no death, pretending like there's no such thing as mourning, pretending you haven't suffered loss. Um, you guys, you know who Fred Rogers is, um, Mr. Rogers, um, heir to the Daniel Tiger throne, right? Um, well, patriarch of the Daniel, sorry, my bad. Um, so Mr. Rogers, uh, at one point he's asked, someone asked him in this interview, this CBS interview, um, how do we talk to our children? Because Mr. Rogers actually originally was like, was a reverend. He was, he was Presbyterian, minister. Um, and someone asked him at one point, they said, they said, how do we teach our ki- children about suffering? They see these terrible things in the news. What do we do? Um, h- 
how do, how do we talk to them about it? Um, and what he said was incredibly brilliant. He writes this. He says, um, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words. I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. And so this question arises up in the world around us when terrible things happen. Like, where is God in that? And good old Mr. Rogers says, ah, you know, he's in, he's in the people running towards the fire, running towards the gunfire, running towards the burning bus, running towards the tragedy. He's, he's in... He's in the ones at the Boston Marathon who pick up and carry those who suffered. Even though there may be more terrifying things coming, we don't know what's going on. It's all disoriented, and they run towards because they care. They have compassion and empathy. That's where God is in tragedy. But tragedy was caused by us, let's be honest. We're the ones that do these things. People. And so where is God in that? Well, God's, God's present in the help. In, in the attempt to bring salvation to these people, to save them from what they're going through. That's where God is in this. This is something the early apostles understood and learned, and this is why the scriptures are, are, are so in-depthly structured the way that they are, speaking to people who are suffering in Christ. Um, okay, so that brings us to today's passage again. Blessed are those who mourn. So we've established the mourning part. For they shall be comforted. Comforted is a really important word to understand. Um, it is this word parakaleo. Everyone say parakaleo. So para, um, it, it's two words. If you take this thing apart and you look at it, how it was used, para, every time you see it, it means to the side of. Um, it means uh, to come beside. You picture somebody walking up beside somebody else. Um, so it's specifically not talking, it's specifically saying it's not one thing, not one person, it's two people. Um, and then the word kaleo is to aid, to help, to, to assist. This is actually where we get our word paramedic. Um, the idea in this word is for whatever reason, someone has fallen. They can't go on any farther. They are heading somewhere and they can't go any farther. In this context, in this verse, it is because they have suffered loss, possibly the loss of a child or a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a friend, and they have suffered loss, and, and they're laying on the side of the road that they're supposed to be traveling down, and they can go no further, and they don't know how to move for, forward at all. And parakaleo is the person who walks along and sees them and picks them up, puts an arm around them, puts their arm over their own shoulder, takes, shifts some of their weight onto them, and now we're at sort of face level, and you're looking forward, and I can speak in your ear. And I can say, we're going to do this. We're going to keep moving. We're going to move forward. We, uh, I, I know you can't go any farther, so I will bear this burden with you, and I will carry you forward for as long as I need to. And so the message, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, um, this is an incredibly beautiful and important thing because once again, it reminds us of the thing we learned in the first beatitude that what we need is not found inside of ourselves. It is found outside of ourselves. It is found um, in the divine. It is found in community. It is found in the community of the divine. Um, 
And so this brings me, if you ever uh, are in, if you ever took a, a Watermark 201 class, we haven't done it in a while. Um, but I actually, lately, I've been talking about, about this idea in the 101 class, too. Um, the idea of the Trinity. Um, oftentimes, people bring these, these doctrines up, and they say things like, well, um, do you believe in the Trinity? Of course I believe in the Trinity. And they're like, well, describe what it is. And, and, and mainly, it's just, you know, um, it's just people that really care about facts, and they want to debate theology because we're still under the Enlightenment, and facts are all that matter to us. Um, and so it's just people that want to show off their, their doctrine. But um, we need to understand these theologies not not just so that we can have them in our brains and say, I believe this. We have them, we, we believe in them because, and we hold to them, we understand them, because it changes how we move throughout this world. For instance, let's talk about the Trinity. So the Trinity is, is this idea of one God, three persons, and it's all very difficult to describe because um, as we understand, there's nothing like it, and, and you can read all these ancient theologies about all this, and there's still new people developing theologies about, about what this means. Um, the ancient people understood it like this. Um, God is a community. God is one, but God is a community. And so you have this idea that one is always, each one individually is always pouring out and filling up the other while also receiving and being filled up. And this is how God looks. Um, theologians have called it, I've talked about this before, um, have called the movement sort of uh, the, the constant giving and receiving of the Trinity. They've called it the, uh, the perichoresis. Choresis is really, we get our word from choreography. It's, they called it the dance of God. Um, and there's this, there's this idea of, of as each is pouring out and being poured into, it's, uh, we see this, we, this is how marriages should be built. This is how we should, we, we should understand marriage, that if each is pouring out for solely for the needs of the other, then both are filled. Um, and, and, and this is an example of how we are to live. And so we take this idea of the Trinity and, and out of this self-giving and, and receiving love, this constant giving love, out of that we have a God who says, and let us create man in our image. And so we are born sort of out of that. And so we are, we are birthed out of this to t actually take part in, in pouring out for God and receiving from God. And then we are also told, oh, by the way, you should mirror this in your life. And so that's what the church is. It's the body of Christ. And so your theology of God, how you understand God, will either drive you to gather by yourself and seek inward and seek God, um, in which case you'll have no mirror on which to accurately judge yourself. The, the biblical orthodox way to understand God is that God is a community. Out of this community, we are born, and we are meant to take part in this community because we are to realize that what we need is not self-contained inside ourselves. It is received from the outside. And so the church um, sort of mirrors the image of God in this world. And the more you understand this, the more you read scriptures, the more you start to see it. That um, as we understand God, as we move through the world in, in this way, we, our needs are met. We, we understand how this works. And then you look at the world around you and you say, well, no, they can't fill themselves up. They, they need me. They need, they need God. They need the body of Christ. And so we enter into this situation and parakaleo, we put our arm around them and we carry them out. Now, um, so the Beatitudes are a paradox. 
an, an amazing paradox. And they're meant to be. You're meant to read them, even the original readers, were meant to read the Beatitudes and say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I be blessed if I'm poor? Why would I, why would I be blessed if I'm, if I'm losing members of my, what, if I'm mourning death in my life? So let's be honest. The, the, the Beatitudes are this paradox. They're this thing that we spend our entire lives avoiding. None of us want to be impoverished. None of us want to be destitute. None of us want to lose anyone in our lives. None of us want to enter into suffering or any kind of, um, any kind of sort of heavy-weighted, painful thing. None of us want any of this. And so we spend our entire lives avoiding these things. We orientate everything that we do about keeping these things from coming near us. We create laws to, keep, to do our best to keep poverty away from us. Um, uh, it, it affects every aspect of our, of our, of our government. It, when people are voting, they tend to say, well, this person's going to bring more poverty. If we let these people in, they're going to bring poverty. Um, and there's going to be crime, which leads to um, pain and loss and destitution. And so we spend our whole lives avoiding all of this. And it's understandable. But in the midst of avoiding all of this and, and desiring all sunshine all the time, Jesus walks in and says, okay, well, when were you going to receive comfort? When were you going to be, not comfort as in like a fluffy chair or a lecture. I mean, when were you going to be parakaleo? When were you going to receive that? And so Jesus en enters into this like, well, we're the pursuit of happiness. We're, we're not going to be poor. And then, and then people take the gospel of Christ and they turn it into health and wealth. God wants you to be happy and healthy and rich. Despite the fact that every one of his followers, things went very bad for them. Every one of them, inclu including Jesus himself. Um, and so in the midst of our desire to have all sunshine all the time, Jesus enters in and says, hey, you know, one of the great gifts in this world is, is parakaleo. When were you planning on experiencing that? And you're kind of like, no, I wasn't. But, but is it not beautiful? Is it not this amazing, beautiful thing? Of course it is. It's beautiful. And encouragement and someone bearing your burden and, and watching and seeing empathy and compassion happen, of course, it's beautiful. When were you going to experience that? I'm not. I'm doing everything I can to avoid it. And that makes sense. It's understandable. And no one is saying that you should strive to suffer in this way. But there's this underlying tone. Um, you ever heard the phrase, whistling past the graveyard? Whistling past the graveyard. It's the idea that somebody is walking past um, a graveyard. Um, and so what they do is they start whistling a song. They just dis distract and they smile. And, uh, and they're not going to look at it. They're going to walk on by. And I'm, I'm not going to affirm that they're suffering in any way. Did you know, and I make sure my, my, uh, my when, when I do premarriage counseling, I make sure that the couples understand this. Did you know that marriage ends badly no matter what? I don't want to bum you out, but I'm going to bum you out for a couple of minutes. It ends badly. Either divorce or death. This doesn't end well. Did you know friendship ends badly? Did you know family doesn't end well? Did you know life ends badly? We don't want to think about this stuff. And I have to make a disclaimer when I talk about this stuff. I don't mean to bum you out. That's a disclaimer because we, we don't want to think about it. 
we, we choose not to, and we whistle past the graveyard, and we spend our whole life assuming nothing bad's ever going to happen, and we don't talk about it, we don't talk about death, don't ponder all these, all these pains, because that's not God's plan for us. God is not found in that. God is, God is only found in the sunshine. And so God has promised me that if I do these things, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be healthy. And we are whistling past the graveyard. And what God wants us to know, what Jesus sat with his disciples and taught them, and what they learned that, that allowed them to move forward is he looked at them and he said, you know I'm there, right? I'm in that. I'm not just in the sunshine. I'm not just in the good all the time. When, when you enter into suffering, if you have been taught that all of life and all of Christianity, all of following Jesus is about sunshine all the time, when you enter into darkness, you will not see me there. But I want you to know I'm there. I understand suffering better. And you can find me in that. And you say, well, where? How could you have a part in that? Parakaleo. Because in that moment, when you have lost whatever you have lost, and you can't look forward, you can't move forward, and you're stuck, I'm going to be present, I'm going to enter into the story. Maybe, maybe the divine himself, maybe um, a representative of the divine in the form of the church is going to enter in and bring some food and put their arms around you and you sit with me and you eat and you cry. And they're going to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. But this is not the end of your life. We are going to move forward. And in this, we are going to find more meaning and you're going to realize how much more of a gift life is. And then one day, someone around you will suffer the same thing and you will be the presence of God in their life. And so this is what Jesus is describing. He says, you can't spend your entire life not dealing with the difficult things. Not confronting the things that need to be confronted. You can't spend your life avoiding these things because you're just afraid of how they end. One of the most, um, one of the most beautiful parts of a wedding ceremony that people tend to ignore and skip right past is the part where they say, so that's the worst part. Right there, in the service, in the ceremony, there is an affirmation that this, this isn't going to end well. One of us will watch the other fall away. But does that mean, does that mean that, that we don't get married, that we just avoid it? No, that means we actually dive in and, and suck the life out of it. We jump in with everything we have and we just live it to the fullest because there will be a time when we no, long, we no longer have it. And it's the fact that it's short. It's the fact that life is short that makes it so incredibly beautiful. And, and, and in this moment, you sort of, you find the divine is there saying, yes, affirm it. Embrace it while you have it. And so there is this thing that those who have mourned, you look at them and you say, I could never, ever move forward if I have experienced what you've experienced. And what they say is, I, I didn't think I could either. But God was there. God was present. God was present when you came and sat with me and cried. And blessed are those who mourn. Because parakaleo, someone someone the divine will be present in that and will enter it with you and so the beatitudes are a paradox um on top of that the church itself um is a paradox the church itself is a paradox because um so the the church part of what we do is we affirm that there 
there is something wrong with the world. There is something wrong with the human condition. And so what the church does is sort of a mirror of, of the Beatitudes, all right? So there is something wrong with the human condition. Now, for the last 100 to 150 years, um, there's been this umbrella term that we've used. The theologians have always had more terms, but for the last 150 years or so, we've just used the word sin as the human condition, as what's wrong with the world. And, and this idea has informed our atonement theories and all of this. And so we just declare the problem with the world is, is sin. Sin is a problem with the world, um, and it's a huge one. And there's an answer to sin, and it's forgiveness. Um, but the scriptures are clear. There's much more than just that. That the gospel is far more than just forgiveness. That that is included, but it's not the defining thing. I mean, um, there's lots of verses that talk about sin, but there's also lots of verses that talk about um, things like being blind, being in exile. Um, I mean, look at First uh, John two eleven. But but those who hate a brother or sister are in darkness. And they walk around in the darkness, and they don't know where they are going, and the darkness has made them blind. And so there's this blindness. They need, to, they, need to, they need to be made to see. They need to be given sight again, spiritual sight. Psalm 137.4 talks about exile. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in another land? So there's this idea that, like, those in exile don't have home. And then there's, uh, in Galatians 5, Christ has set us free. He wants us to enjoy freedom, to stand firm. Don't let the chains of slavery hold you again. So there's this idea of bondage. All of these things are part of the human experience. And there's more. There's tons of it. Exodus 8, 7. But when Pharaoh saw that there was, uh, there was respite, he hardened his heart. So one of them is, is a hardened heart. Um, another one is um, a closed heart. And another one is, is we are, um, there's, there's sort of enslavement in the idea of addiction. And then there's just sin, outright rebellion, missing the mark, not being what you could be, not being what you were created to be. And so for each one of these things that is part of the human condition, uh, for each one of these things, there is an answer that is found in the message of Christ and in following in the way of Christ. Um, and this is really important to understand because if you just use sin as a catch-all for all of it, because the answer to sin is forgiveness. But if you walk up to the Israelites in bondage and you say, your sins are forgiven, they might be thankful for that, but they're still in bondage. If you go to the women who have been kidnapped by Boko Haram and are being raped and turned into sex slaves for these fighting boys, and you go to them and you say, your sins are forgiven, and they say, that doesn't, thank you, I, that doesn't solve my situation. There probably are sins of theirs that need to be forgiven, but what they need is freedom. They need to be brought home. They have freedom from bondage. Um, along with people who are in addiction. They understand that their choices are motivated by sin, and, and there's things that they've done that probably need, for, that they need forgiveness for. But there's also this, this idea that, no, I'm in bondage, and I need a community of people to help me find a way out of this because I can't do this on my own. And so there's always this idea of the church around which sees the problem and leads us out. There's this theologian, um, Marcus Borg, who puts it like this. He says, forgiveness doesn't speak to every issue, but the central images of the Christian life as a way do. So he says the Christian life is, is a way, it's a path, it's how Christians live. In this idea of, of the image of, of God, the Trinity, um, in community. And he says, the Im uh, but the central images of the Christian life as a way do. It is a way of returning from exile, reconnection. It's a way of, of liberation from bondage, a way in which our sight is restored, a way of having our hearts opened by spending time in thin places, a way that leads from being lost to finding and being found. And so he says the good news that we teach, we're actually only teaching like a portion of it, is actually far bigger 
that what the community of Christ is meant to do is be the paradox. So when we speak to those who are mourning and they're impoverished and they're suffering, um, and, we, and, and Jesus says, well, God will meet you there. There's attributes of God that you can only learn there. Um, we in the church see all these people in these different situations, and they feel exiled, and they have no home. And the church says, uh, we're the body of Christ. You have a home. You are welcome just a, a community of broken people who understand that we're not a, as Timothy Keller says, the church is not a showroom for stuff. It's a hospital for sin. And then there's people who absolutely need forgiveness. And we point to the cross. And we say, you are, your sins are forgiven. And then there's other people who are in bondage and they need enslavement to somebody. And so we, we, we find a way to provide counseling stuff while you're at a counseling center. We, find, we have AA meetings, and, and we're constantly trying to find these new ways to help people out of bondage. Um, and then there's people whose hearts are hardened, and they will not open up. And for them, we spend time in prayer and conversation. And then there's people who are suffering. And so the church itself is the paradox. We, we, we go to all of these situations in which people are suffering, and we say, you know, God is here. Now, God can lead you out of this. I know you feel like you're alone and abandoned and, and God's not near you, but we serve actually a God, a suffering God, who, 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 whose arms are stretched out, suffering on a cross, who understands exactly where you're at, who has suffered in every way that you have, who understands your temptations, and so he is capable of leading you out. We are the body of Christ, and we will find a way to make you whole again. Salvation is so much. It is not just this one thing. Salvation is the fixing and reconciliation of all things to God. That's what the church should be. Um, so I don't know where you are today. Um, I, don't, I don't know what you've gone through. Um, but what should be happening here in this place is that we should be learning that as we follow the way of Christ, we slowly begin to see God in all places, not just the bright times, not just the glowing, shiny times. Um, and, and we should no longer expect sunshine all the time. And when we enter into times of pain and difficulty, those are the times when we understand, oh, it's, it's because it's raining and this is the spiritual rainstorm that we're talking about. Um, we have some growing to do. And we can find God in that. We can find God in every moment and every place. God is present. Uh, the best picture of this is the communion. Uh, at, at the root of, of the idea of communion is it's, it's Christ in the come. Come is, is in that word. It's just bread. It's just wine. You've had bread and we've had wine tons of times. But in this moment, we're infusing the presence of God and, and meaning into it. We're going to stop and we're going to understand that, no, this is just it's just bread, but for this moment, it's the body of Christ. Uh, it's just wine, but for this moment, it's the blood of Christ. And as we do this, this is an exercise because as we move throughout our world, we should be looking around and saying, it's just the cashiers. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a child of God. And it, it should be shifting our thinking to as we move through the world, we're going to find Christ more and more in the come, in suffering, in joy, in the people around us. And then we're going to point out the divine God. And so we're going to take communion in our communion service and gather the elements and spread around the room. And um, we're going to spend some time in prayer and communion. And we're going to exercise um, sort of our, our faith in this way. And we're going to practice seeing God, the divine, in in the come. And our prayer is that every day this will become more and more our natural state of, of 
Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this place and these people. May we learn to see you not just in the, the bright times, but also in the darkness. May we understand that rain is necessary for growth. May we understand that though we want to avoid the difficult and dark times, they will come. And when they do, let us be the kind of people that have built our faith in such a way that we look for you in it and that we receive your blessings in those times. May we receive encouragement. May we receive um, the communion of, of friends. May we understand that you understand us better.